Summer is here and that means it's time for extra family read-alouds, beach reads, and earning that free pizza from the local library. The Cersei Press is here to help with four new titles. First, we're excited to offer you our first fully illustrated children's book. Learn the Latin alphabet, common verbs associated with speaking, and the Latin names of 24 nouns in ABK Latine. In this beautifully illustrated alphabet book, each letter of the Latin alphabet is paired with an animal that makes the same sound. So even parents with no knowledge of Latin can easily read this book with their children. While your young ones are learning Latin, curl up with a cup of tea and enter King Arthur's court with your older children in Legends of the Round Table. This carefully curated collection of Arthurian legends were chosen for their celebration of chivalry, honor, nobility, and beauty. In addition to the tales, you will find discussion questions for further contemplation. And when you get some time to yourself, contemplate the true, good, and beautiful with Josh Gibbs in his new book, Love What Lasts. In today's world, almost nothing lasts. Books and films that are wildly popular one year are forgotten by the next. Some things do last, though. 200 years later, we are still listening to Beethoven. 1,600 years later, we are still reading Augustine. In Love What Lasts, Joshua Gibbs offers readers a wide-angle view of contemporary culture, explains how we got here, and invites readers to reconsider the role which old books, old music, and old films might play in their lives and the lives of their families. And for those parents and teachers who just can't spend their summer reading without prepping for the fall, the Circe Press is excited to announce a new book, by C. Scott and David V. Hicks. The tyrant Julius Caesar, as told by Plutarch and Shakespeare. The Hicks brothers bring their experience translating and annotating Plutarch in The Statesman and the Lawgivers for this unique look at one of history's most divisive and interesting figures. Starting with their highly readable translation of Plutarch's Life of Caesar and the wealth of insights provided by their thorough annotations, maps, and diagrams. The Hicks then turn their attention to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. This annotated text of the play is unique comparing Shakespeare's rendition of Caesar's life to Plutarch's, noting his sources, and considering the Elizabethan story in light of its classical origins. Not confined to literature, history, linguistics, or philosophy, this work bridges all these disciplines, making it an exemplary example of the study of humanities. ABK Latine, Love at Last, and Legends of the Roundtable are available for purchase now. The tyrant is pre-order, meaning you can claim yours at a discounted price for a limited time. To get these books and many more Cersei titles, head to CerseiInstitute.org backslash books. Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you'll be meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined once again by Patty and Alec Bianco for Herodotus. Uh, We have all been on the road a lot lately and about to be on the road some more. So thank you guys for joining me. How are you all today? Doing pretty well. Recovering. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we're in the thick of our conference season. I was recently at, at SEL and Alec right after that was at ACCS. And Patty and Matt were dropping off another child for grad school. And, and then we're all gearing up for our, the national conference uh, in a few weeks in Denver. So busy time of year, but found some time to stop and finish out uh, Harajah's book one. So we are going to do that today. Patty is going to give us a quick narration of this last section. We had left off at, at section 144 in book one, so we'll take it from 145 to the end. Okay. Maybe go back a little bit. We started in 143, or yeah, 143 with the Malaysians who had a treaty with Persia. And then it talks about the Ionians and then the Dorian cities and how there was five, maybe six of them we'll get to hear about um the one who was formerly part of the dorian cities and then there's 12 ionian cities that we get to hear about um 
which is interesting with the, the number 12. Maybe we can talk more about that. Then we hear the Ionians apparently are ashamed of their name. Some are, some aren't. Some have more pure, they think they're more purebred or noble. We get to hear a little bit about that, about the people of Smyrna. And the Islander people, apparently at this time, there are not too many people who are, or at least the Persians aren't seafarers. So we get to hear about some of the island people. And all this time, how uh, Cyrus is trying to take over all this section of land. And he wants to take over Ionia, that apparently is weak now, except for the Athenians. And then the Lydians revolt against the Persian rule. But Croesus, to help save his people, he has a decision, he fears they're going to be kicked out, tells, gives Cyrus some advice and tells them to, with some instructions about how they should, one, um, not have any weapons of war, they should wear tunics and soft boots, and they should play the lyre and the harp and educate their sons to be shopkeepers. Then they will be women and there will be no fear of future rebellion. And Croesus, or Cyrus likes this idea so much that he enacts it and has um, a Mede named, I believe his name is Mazaris, go and have all the Lydian people take this and they had to capture this one gentleman named Pactize, who was supposed to be over the gold for the city of Sardis, but instead led a coup or siege against the guy who was in charge. And so Mazaris is after this guy, and he this guy flees once he knows that <laughs> there are people after him. And he asks... Um, I think he's in Chios first. And then they go to the gods and ask what they should do. And this one gentleman, Aristikos, doesn't believe the oracle that they need to hand over Pactize. And so he goes back and asks the oracle again. And Oracle gets mad because he goes and shoes all the suppliants away. And so then the people have to decide, do we hand over Pactiz or do we get destroyed? And they say, no, let's let him go off. And so we follow this guy around to a couple different places before. Um, actually, it was the Kayans who who handed him over. They made a deal to with Mazaris. So they handed him over and then Mazaris died unexpectedly of an illness. And then our friend Harpagos from way back when with Astyges becomes general and he's taking over um, trying to conquer Ionia. And we get to hear about his attack with the Ionian city of Phokia. Phoc- Phokians, um, 
were the first to make long sea voyages. And then we get to hear about his particular kind of sieging that Harpagus does, that he learns from the Assyrians called earthworks, where they build mounds to be able to get over the city walls. And then we hear about how people try to escape, namely the Phokians. Um, they make a, a one-day deal if he'll back back up. And then he does, and then they sleep, uh, get away <laughs> that night on boats. They take all their women and their goods. And they, so then the next day they come and he takes the city, but the city's empty. And so they set sail for Corsica, um, which is pretty far from their homeland, according to the map. And then they arrive there, but they're making, they're not being very good neighbors. And so the neighbors get angry and they want to fight them. So the Tyranians and the Carthaginians, they have a war with them. And so they have this war on the sea. So now we have two um, groups on the sea waging war. And the Phokians win, but they call it a Cadmian victory because they really lost most of their ships and didn't didn't gain many riches in, in the deal. And so they end up deciding to leave and going to somewhere else but before that the prisoners that were taken in the war go to a town called care that's on the coast of italy and they're stoned to death the prisoners and people who passed by where they were stoned were getting uh, crippled and twisted and suffering strokes so then they go to delphi and say how can we make this right and so they have to hold the prisoners that they stoned in honor and have athletic and equestrian competitions. And then um, most of the Ionians complied. They didn't really fight back. They submitted to Cyrus. So it keeps going. And it, and then Herodotus talks about some other of the groups of people, the Carians, the Conians, as Cyrus just keeps going further and further with his um, invasions, the Nindians, and they, um, one group tries to, I thought this was interesting, tries to take their, make an island out of their land, and so they're digging canals and then they're they're starting to get all these injuries, and they said it must be something supernatural. So they go to the Delphi to ask why it's happening, and they say it's because had Zeus wanted to your your land to be an island, he would have made it thus. And so they stop, and then they submit. And then the Lycians they try to resist Harpagus by burning down their own city, killing their families, and everything. And the men stand to fight, but then they all die. So a couple of cities tried the same, and they all fail. Then he moves even further into Babylonian territory. Um, and then it talks 
in great detail about the Babylonian city and the customs, as well as um, the towers uh, that they build. They build a statue to Zeus and a tower for the gods. And apparently the god comes down and stays the night. No one's allowed to go in there except for one woman. And apparently the Egyptians have something similar to this. And then they talk about two female rulers of Babylon that were notable. Semiramis, who created dikes throughout the plain, and Nidocris, who was an intelligent queen, left behind memorials, and was also very cunning in her defense. She created, um, in Babylonian, the river Euphrates divides it in half. She took the river and made it into a lake to help as a defense, as well as um, creating bridges so that her people could cross. And then she decided to, they say, devise a clever ruse. She had a tomb for herself midair above one of the portals, where if a king needed any money, um, to have this inscription that he could come and take as much as he wanted. And no one did until Darius decided to try it. And then, of course, he opens it up, finds no money. Instead, an inscription that says, you would not open the graves of the dead if you were not so insatiable and shamefully greedy. <laughs> and so Cyrus continues to go to war. He keeps going further and further. He gets angry with a river. And then decides to split it with canals. And this helps him defeat the Babylonians in the end by lowering the Euphrates and taking the city by surprise. Um, they were having a festival at the time. And then he talks about some of the irrigation of Mesopotamia and their how they dress and the boats, interesting leather boats that are made circular that would carry the donkeys and all the goods downstream, and then they would have to ride the donkeys up river because the current was too too much to take the circular boat up. And the Babylonians would auction off their women um, for wives. They would sell the, the prettiest ones first and make lots of money to help the un not so pretty ones or the crippled ones have a dowry with them. So people would actually um, purchase them for wives. And then they had to prove that they were going to marry the women. And if for some reason it wasn't agreed upon, like you got home and you just couldn't get along, they had to pay the gold back. But then when they were taken over, they don't do that custom anymore. Now they just, if you can't make a living, they prostitute their daughters. They also bring their sick into the public square so that people who may have had that same illness or knew how to cure it could help others. And Herodotus said this was the second wisest thing that they did. Uh, the Babyl Babylonians had some more ritual prostitution customs of where once in a lifetime a woman had to go to the sanctuary of Aphrodite and have intercourse with a stranger. And the 
tallest and fairest usually had no problem. They'd be able to go home and they'd be done. But some of the others, it might take a few years before they could fulfill their holy duty. And then Cyrus conquers the Babylonians. He sets his heart on the Masagaiti, decides to conquer them, and he's maybe puffed up a little bit, too much pride. He's had all these um, successful conquerors, but this one um, doesn't work out so well for him. He meets another queen whose husband's passed away, Tamaris. He gets advice from Creases again that works, but then he has a dream about uh, Darius. He misinterprets the dream and ends up, he does succeed with his strategy. He captures Tamaris's son um, by, Creases told him that they're not used to such nice things. He should get all the, the food and the wine and have a big banquet. And so he, he gets them all drunk. And then once they are not drunk anymore, the, the son kills himself. Queen hears of it, gets very angry. Don't mess with the mama. And um, she goes after him and kills him. And it talks about their clothing and some of their customs again. The end. <laughs> yeah, I like how it's like this big moment. Cyrus dies, and then I'm going to give you a little bit more about what they look like. Like, just to kind of wrap it up. <laughs> Gotta love Herodotus. So funny. And we were doing so good in this section. Like, the previous oracles, people were, like, asking second questions. And <laughs> and know. and getting better and like figuring it out, and then he has a dream and misinterprets it. It's like, oh come on, man, so close, so close. I think this this is probably just true about the Herodotus generally and Thucydides too. Um, but is reading through this and hearing sort of the of anecdotes about the way these people lived and some of their practices it really <laughs> brings into perspective the fact that we live in a post-christian society <laughs> and how easy it is to take that for granted um you know from a secular perspective there are these folks who think that you know oh it's so easy to live in a moral society you don't need christianity to be moral and that's very easy to say because we live in a post-Christian society. And the fact that these kinds of customs that Harajas is describing don't exist and haven't existed for so long, it's unthinkable. But that these people were doing all kinds of, you know. I mean, there are things that Harajas says as bad or he doesn't like them which I would agree with. But even the thing he says is most ingenuous, or in, in, um, what does he call it? I don't know. He says it's really, there's a lot of ingenuity or something with them, the way that they, the Babylonians auction off their marriageable women. It's like, no, 
okay. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was guess, interesting too. <laughs> yeah. I guess from if the alternative is prostitution, then yeah, it's probably a good practice. But why can't you guys just get married and live happy lives like normal people? <laughs> yeah, it's a super practical system, right? Like we have to get people married off when they're when they're of the right age to, you know, childbearing and whatnot. So we'll make the rich people pay for the, you know, healthy, attractive, whatever wives. And then we'll use that money to convince the, the the poor people to take the the less attractive or less healthy wives. But it sorts it all out, right? Like everybody gets the 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 city keeps uh, producing children and all that kind of stuff. But it's very dehumanizing, right? Like you're pointing out, Alec, in this for us. But it was a very practical way to keep their city state strong and reproducing and you know all those kind of things and then yeah like you said you see the alternative is like well when that fault goes away it's just if you don't have money you just go right into prostitution it's like oh yeah we're living in a very different world than the <laughs> than the than the world that surrounded the um the the you know the israelites essentially <laughs> Yeah, or the people, I can't remember what, who they were, the people towards the end, though, who, when they get old, they boil you and eat you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Forgot about that part. And that's considered an honorable death. But if you die of disease or something and you're buried, that's a dishonorable death. Yikes. Um, like, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like everybody should read this just to understand how good we got it. <laughs> right. This is not there yeah yeah i thought that was unusual custom that they i think it talked about them not wearing gold or silver they had more iron in the land they were using things in the land but that it was a great honor to be killed like their kin would come together and kill them and then they would be boiled and eaten but if you were sick then you were just buried like normal and I was listening to this on our road trip and I was telling Matt, my husband, about that. And he's like, well, what do you have a problem with them <laughs> burying them? I was like, no, I'm eating them. <laughs> it's like, that's so weird. And I think in, in the last section we read, there was something about them. When they greet each other, they would cut each other open and lick the blood. And yeah. Like, that's just it's very different. Yeah, I don't actually know either historically, like, um, so I see these jokes all the time, or not jokes, this conversation, and there's memes about it, how a lot of what Herat just wrote was kind of written off by more modern historians, like as myth or inaccurate or whatever. Um, We get that with Homer and stuff, too, like, well, he doesn't even have peoples and places, and there's no evidence of those people being there. And then... And then more recent archaeology like confirms it, right? So I saw saw one of these memes about Herodotus, you know, yeah, I do telling the truth. Like, yeah, I do that a lot. Um, but uh I, I I have to wonder like how much of what we know about the the Babylonian city comes from this description. It's a pretty lengthy description. Um, it's not super detailed about their practices. I mean, that empire lasted, I think, over a thousand years, um, in some in some form. But 
we, I don't know that we would really recognize how kind of how powerful an empire it was. You know, we, we read about the Babylonians in in the Old Testament that we don't really doesn't give us a lot of background about the people and the and the empire. It just as it's just a it's just an opponent, right? It's just a threat to, to Israel. Um, whereas we get kind of the a scope of the type of city they built was pretty intense and kind of ahead of the game with this giant moat and swamp and redirecting rivers, you know, kind of stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing that they were able to figure that out, like how to divert powerful rivers. Like I don't imagine the river Euphrates being small, right? If they had to cross it by boat to get to the other side of the, mm-hmm. of the city, even Cyrus doing the same, like you know, they're creating all these channels. And... I thought the part about um is telling Cyrus to teach the Lydians to, or, and tell them to, you know, dress a certain way and play the harp and lyre and become shopkeepers. It'll turn them into women. <laughs> um, is very interesting because it's sort of funny as an anecdote, but also it just seems kind of appropriate for our times where our men are becoming effeminate and our women becoming masculine and we're sort of flipping these gender roles or destroying these gender barriers and not to get too political on this podcast but (laughs) um it's just sort of fascinating that Rhesus advocated for this you know thousands of years ago and knew that it would destroy those people it would turn them into slaves easily easily conquered who couldn't revolt against right the persians and then and so i have to sort of raise the question is that what's happening today are we becoming slaves um to the point where we can't revolt against any sort of oppressor yeah it's it's all it's one of those things that's always uh, you know, it came up when we were talking about Gilgamesh on the last podcast with Andrea and Matt. We were just, just trying to discuss why, should, like, should we read it? Right, because Gilgamesh really hasn't been as much part of the tradition like like Herodotus has, right? But the, one of the things that comes back to is, you know, why do these things endure and last? And it's because they can they wrestle with questions that don't go away that we continue to wrestle with, right? And so it brings that kind of thing up, right? How how do you kind of neuter a populace in a way that they can be enslaved? And because just gives some advice and it and it works. And um, we see other, you know, and that's not even a major one of the major questions of history, but it's a uh, it's a thing that repeats in history for sure. And so, um, it, but it is something that's brought up by the by the philosophers and others how to how to have a strong city or city state. Um, that we still, I think, wrestle with today on on various levels, and maybe even on an outsized scale with a nation as big as ours, or or a global, you know, kind of global economy and all that kind of stuff. So, I, I'm just curious why he chose that. Right, this was a people he obviously cared about the Lydians. Right, he was their king. 
but he he said he was he was afraid of them being enslaved and sold and so in order for them to not be destroyed at all he tells them to do this but like you said Alec I mean that's going to lead to a type of slavery yeah. right of where you're not able to rebel so I, I just find it interesting the that he makes this choice for all these people who still do this to this day, like even and like the Lydian tones are still kind of effeminate in music, right? Uh, so <laughs> that they they went along with it, and it was so such a turning point, right? That that all these people now are this way, and would have you know given the choice would they prefer to be destroyed but i guess we get to see different choices that, that the cities made themselves right and, and trying to not be enslaved under the persian rule which is better and then herodotus i i think it's funny when he says i'm only going to tell you what's noteworthy like he gets to decide which which story he thinks is i don't know more entertaining or more truthful yeah it seems to be talking about which cities kind of fight with cyrus or are, are, are noteworthy and worth you know mentioning specifically so he's like you said he skips over several he just says conquered a bunch of them I mean, with babylon it's it's still probably obvious right because it's such a it had been such a long-standing not only city but empire so but some of the others it's it's kind of Maybe new for us if you haven't if we haven't read it before. Why there these are important uh, stories. What do y'all make of the comparison then between like what happens with the Lydians, who just kind of take this? Okay, we'll just be this right. And it seemed like he was trying to keep them from becoming maybe like a chattel type slavery where they're being taken around to do hard labor or something, versus the group that burns all their own women and children in the citadel, <laughs> and then turns around to fight some more. Was it the Lydians and the Lycians? Am I, or am I misremembering? I think that's right. I guess that is the contrast, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what do y'all what do y'all make of that juxtaposition that Herodotus gives us here? Uh, maybe it's the Hollywood influence, but I, I think I'd probably be like, <laughs> want to see the Lycians? You know, it's like, okay, if you can't have it, we're just gonna we're gonna go in here and we're going to fight. We're going to fight him. We're going to die. Or we're going to have our bravest men go out there and, and maybe we can survive as a people. But then part of me is like, oh, well, is life more precious than that, right? Do hmm. you save a whole people that can go generation to generation to generation that possibly... You know, we don't know what the future will hold, but they'll be able to continue on. Hmm. That's a struggle. I, I, yeah, I have no idea. But. Yeah, it's really interesting because at one point, I don't remember exactly, I think it was later when they were fighting the Mesicate. Um, but Croesus tells Cyrus that, because all of the other people are saying to let the queen go across the river and her people and then Croesus is the only one who says that it, I don't think you should 
and maybe I can see if I can just find it and mm -hmm. read it. Um, but Cyrus, oh, he says, my Lord, I have already told you that since God has made me your servant, I will do all I can to avert any danger which I see threatening your house. And I've learned much from my own cruel misfortunes. Doubtless, if you think that you and your men are immortal, there is little point in me telling you my opinion. But if you recognize the fact that both you and the troops under your command are merely human, then the first thing I would tell you is that human life is like a revolving wheel and never allows the same people to continue long in prosperity. My view of the question you're discussing is the opposite of what the others have expressed. And so I thought it was interesting that he says that to Cyrus. Uh, I imagine he's speaking to some degree from experience because he was caught and enslaved. So he knows that, you know, what he said, um, human life is like a revolving wheel and never allows the same people to continue long in prosperity. So I, I was thinking about that a lot. I mean, it comes later, but thinking about that in retrospect and sort of thinking about all the different peoples that he's that Cyrus is conquering and the decisions that they make, whether to fight back or to not, how they fight back. I think what the Fulcans are the ones he's they are like give us one day to think about this and then they just load up on a ship and, <laughs> and leave. <laughs> and and I don't think Harpagus does anything and they just let him go. Um but it's just interesting because if that's true, which it seems like it is, it sort of sheds, it throws an interesting wrench into the question of whether the Lycians should have done that, should have. So it's sort of like at this point, you have to ask yourself, well, what are the Lycians fighting for then? If they just destroyed everything that like their whole livelihood there's no children coming after this because even if they beat them all you've already killed all your children and your wives so it's almost sort of that Achillean kind of fighting for glory mm -hmm. i suppose it's it's really is just we're fighting for the virtue of standing up to a tyrant um i suppose i shouldn't say tyrant uh an oppressor maybe a despot um yeah i don't know it's just it's really interesting and, and i brought up the thesis point because i almost think well it would it be so bad to con to be conquered for a time because human life is like a revolving wheel and doesn't let the same hands carry on too much prosperity so cyrus comes in conquers you but he's going to die and then you're going to be fine, you know, or you can revolt again later or something. I don't know. It's just, it's an interesting uh, virtue choice to make. I, I, what I mean by virtue choice is what virtue are you going to choose? The virtue of having your people or the virtue of fighting out of the prince or I don't know. There was a group of people I was trying to find where they were that they, um, it was talking about when when they're not homogenous people, right? The Ionians, they've they've got all these different people groups in them. And they went to this one and they took they didn't even 
they didn't take their own women. They took these women, the Carrions or something like that. And the Carrion women decided that they were going to have an oath where they were not going to dine with the new husbands and they would pass it down to their daughters. Like you're not even to speak the new husband's name. And so that was in a way their rebellion against them killing, right? Coming in because they killed all the men folks so that they could take the women. And so I wonder if the Lycians, it was, it was that kind of thing. Like if they, if the men kept the women safe, right. And say, walled up in the city and they went out to fight and they died, then the women are going to be taken. That's just how it is. And so then in a way it was just protecting that, right. They're, they're not going to get the satisfaction of taking our women and our, our goods. Yeah. It's curious. I mean, they obviously they fail, right. So it's curious that they thought, well, we can repopulate if we win by taking wives from some of the other Ionian cities or something. And then we can, but if we lose, we don't want them to take our wives as slaves and children as slaves. I don't know. It's a, uh, it's interesting that we get some very dis- distinct um, responses to, to the attack of uh, Cyrus and um, uh, uh, his, who's the Lieutenant, the other, um, uh, Hapargus, Harpagus. Um, you know, like y'all both mentioned, there's the they get away in the ships, the in the one group, and then there's this one where they stand, and then there's the Lydians who basically capitulate. Um, and it, uh, and then the the Masagates or whatever they they also fight and and they lose, but then they get, then they kind of get revenge. Um, it, it's almost, uh, it, it almost, he talked a lot about those Ionian groups were the weakest among these, among what I guess you would call, uh, I don't know, Hel- Hellenistic city-states. I mean, I don't know what, what else to call them at this point because, we use terms in other places where we are kind of lumping them all to, all together, right? The Greeks, the Greeks, I guess. Um, like I'm even used to saying the Achaeans or the Achaeans because of Homer, but in this part, those are separate people. I mean, they're not, they're, they're one of the groups, but they conquer each other also. And so um, it's, it feels like we're kind of getting a, a feel for all these ones that were kind of, in isolation from each other a little bit, even if they're part of the same group of Ionians and then um, moving toward maybe a point in time where they, where they have to fight more, more together. And we get a little hint of that, right. With the Spartan, the Spartans, like deciding not to go fight with the others, but then they do send a messenger to Cyrus. That's like, don't take any Greek city States or you'll have to answer for it, which was kind of a, odd combination of choices to me it seems like that's kind of setting us up for things in the future uh in in here so um uh, it makes me want to read more i know we're just doing book one but it makes me excited to come back and read and not stop with and come back later and pick up with with book two so on some later podcasts the round boats yeah. oh go ahead uh, it's probably going to be something similar to what you're about to say, but I, I just love all the anecdotes about these people. I mean, some of them are 
like we started out with our grotesque, but some of them are just fascinating. Like I loved how when he was describing the city of Nineveh, how well it yeah. matches up with the book of Jonah in the description. I mean, it really was this massive, massive city. Um, and then when he was talking about the wealth of the Babylonians and describing just these average sort of payments or whatever, and it's like five bushels or something. And it's just of, of absurd. Sil of silver, yeah. Yeah, of silver. And their farming practices, like the way that they, you know, um, get their dates ripe, but not fall off the tree, <laughs> things like that. There's just so many little anecdotes in there that just build this, you know, vision of what's what the ancient world was like. It's incredible. I think it's helpful too to kind of break our our kind of post enlightenment, um, you know, progressive lens of history. Right, that like, oh, we're so much smarter and so much farther along. You look at like like you were talking about with the the date stuff, like the trees, like how they're really. Not, not just they like hey they did this and it worked like he explains they knew exactly what they were doing right there's this in whatever that insect was it's going from the male to the female trees and like like they're very aware of what's happening in nature natural science and how like how to cultivate it how to work with it uh there there are ways to irrigate and things like that and then that those crazy leather boats right i'd only ever heard of kind of round leather boats um in like Ireland, UK, like these little small, they're called a coracle, I think. Um, they have bigger leather boats too that are more sh not shaped, they're not round, they're more shaped like you think of a ship. Um, but to, for crossing bigger pieces of water, these are like pretty big round leather boats that just kind of almost like barges that just kind of float down the river, but then collapse and they sell the ribbing of it, the wood that's the ribbing and collapse the leather back down and pack it on the donkey they brought with them back to where they started. Um, just an ingenious like system of, of commerce that I think, you know, we think we're so much more far advanced, but, but they, they had this down like to a science essentially. Um, it's pretty fascinating. I didn't realize dates had that same thing with the fly that makes it ripen. So when I was little, someone told me that there were mosquito eggs in the figs, and so I wouldn't eat them. I guess in the crunchy bits, but apparently that is that is a true thing. That it nice. <laughs> nice. Them. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Brandon, about shedding our post enlightenment understanding of the world. And it's I was talking last week with someone about this idea of environmentalism and how we have when you hear that word we tend to think of this sort of left-leaning progressive understanding of you know big globalist environmentalism you know carbon tax and um veganism and you know Mm -hmm. whatever uh, you know electric cars and all that stuff and i'm not commenting on any of those particular things but it does sort of show how 
it's very difficult for us to talk about the world and living in it without it being um, sort of tinted by an ideological framework. Mm -hmm. And to read these ancient peoples in their lives and their practices and their customs, uh, later on, there's a very famous quotation from Herodotus. I, I can't remember what book it is. Um, I think it's highlighted in blue, actually. It's somewhere in my book. But he says that custom is king. Hmm. Herodotus. And he's quoting somebody. But he says he agrees with them. Um, I can't find it. But yeah, he says custom is king. The idea being that the practices that people do ultimately win out over, you know, sort of arbitrarily or artificially placed laws, regulations. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, I, and I think, obviously, Herodotus doesn't use this word, but I think what we would call ideological or ideological practices, those, those sorts of things are, are artificial in such a way that they aren't sustainable mm -hmm. in the same way that the customs of the local peoples. But it is fascinating how when you're talking about all these sort of conquering people and nations, how quickly or how effectively practices can be changed through certain, you know, like with the Ladians, the, the laws, you know, changing so that they become an effeminate people. And like you said earlier, uh, referencing the, the Republic, that to that, to Socrates' day, the Lydians are known as an effeminate people. Um, so it's it's an interesting question to sort of wrestle with um, reading this and then how you kind of look at the world today, um, especially from a political sort of political lens, because it's very difficult, I think, especially for Americans to look at politics without first looking at it through the lens of an ideology of an ideology whether it's republican or democrat um you know whether you're right or left either way you're sort of looking at it through an ideological lens and it's interesting to read these histories of these peoples they don't have a two-party system <laughs> they don't have these founders you know founding fathers constitutions like we have there's these, these kings and city-states that are battling while at the same time trying to uphold some kind of order and prosperity for their people um, with all these strange practices. So I know that was sort of meandering, but <laughs> it's just really interesting to think about. Well, but to your point, they don't they don't throw out practices, right? They you say custom is king. They those practices have to be forced out. I mean, in all these in all these examples, it's an outside force, right? The Lydians end up that way because they they take away their arms. So you can't pass down how to defend yourself with arms if you no longer have them, right? Um, things like that, and and uh, even the even the practice of the the sale of the wives, right? 
it goes from something that, yeah, we find pretty grotesque and with our, you know, Judeo-Christian sensibilities. Um, but it goes to something worse. Like, like the system they had set up was marriage. Like, I mean, essentially arranged some marriages, right? I mean, it's just being arranged by who has the most money, but so are a lot of arranged marriages um, in, in practice. Uh, but they go from essentially arranged marriages to if you don't have any, if you're poor, you end up in prostitution as opposed to just in an arranged marriage of a lower in the lower classes. And so, but that had to be forced upon them. It happened after they were conquered, right? Their system gets broken by whoever conquers them. And so those customary system, the custom being King works until it's, it's not just a law that's put on it, but it's, it's when the, it's when the actual bit passing down is, is forcibly broken. Um, and I think we could, we could list any number of examples in our own country of that. Um, I was talking to a friend at church the other day whose family has been farming in Oregon for generations, but there's a lot fewer farmers in the Valley they grew up in. It's now run by a couple families. Right. And so we, we forced that by certain policies, uh, making it very difficult to, to, to survive as a farmer, an independent small family farmer. Um, because we decided someone decided that there was a higher, a higher purpose, a higher value. But it had to come externally, like so. I think we see that in lots of ways, and it and it's good, like you said, to see that this has been going. This has been going on for forever, right? That 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 those external changes can really kind of cripple an entire people group, and they get lost. They kind of get washed out of history into other into other things. So that makes me think. You mentioned the Spartans earlier and how they didn't want to get involved and i can't remember now who somebody sent a messenger to not mess with the greek cities and then cyrus got kind of irritated with that and insulted them by saying that they had a um what was the term agora or something like that um basically a, a city market because the persians didn't have that kind of city market that um, they kind of held it, you know, as, as lower, but then not like today we all have city markets. So <laughs> that must have kept on that custom. He talks about many of them, like they would take customs from others and then they might have a unique one. Like the Lycians, I believe they, he mentioned they had a matriarchal family lie and they took their names from their mother. And that's what made them unique. I think that's the same in the is that Hispanic culture that they take the matriarchal name as well. Uh, I don't know. It's interesting that we get we get that we get both of those lines for uh, for Christ in the New Testament. That is really interesting. Especially when you think about the implications of his humanity coming, really coming through the line of, of Mary, not the line of Joseph, right? So the importance of that Marian line back to the, to the throne of David. 
something else I was going to ask you guys what you thought, and I've totally forgotten now what that was. <laughs> going back to the Fakians, I think it's so interesting that you know they're over in Ionia, and they they're taking their boats all the way to. They have other kinds of boats too. We've got lots of boats in this one, circle boats, and these. Boats with a bunch of rowers. I, I forget what it's called, a penta contour or something like that. Anyway, but they go all the way over to Corsica, which had to be a pretty long voyage looking for land. And then they go back to their land to kill the um, people there. The garrison that was that Harpagus had left there. And then they make a curse that no people can stay there. And they drop, it says they drop iron mm -hmm. there. They won't come back till it's it's visible again. I don't know what you guys imagine, but I was just imagining like a, like with a ship, you know, you drop the anchor. But I wonder what what that was that they they dropped there. But then I guess half of the people did go back. And I wonder if they were cursed when they went back to the land that they weren't supposed to. Yeah, I'm curious if that's one of the things we that like he was he revisits later. Either the iron piece of iron in some way or the people that went back. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's why we need to do more books. <laughs> he has a way of doing that, bringing it back up and explaining it more comes into play. The seafaring groups are interesting to me because it keeps pointing out that Persia doesn't really have a navy, basically, yet. Um, because they have, I think he keeps saying they haven't, they hadn't yet taken the Phoenicians. And so maybe like they basically acquire one with the Phoenician ships some point um but i think that 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 ship warfare um is going to become more and more important in this region uh especially when you have so many places that are islands that are basically protected just by not being on the mainland um that that seems an interesting thing to be looking at for for anybody who's going to be going forward um or when we come back and revisit other books of herodotus but um and i'm just a fan of the sea so <laughs> it seems strange to conquer the greek islands without boats i don't yeah. know how that works yeah one thing you mentioned in here that once he had taken the mainland all the islanders then submitted like they were I guess they thought the mainland would protect them and not knowing that they didn't know how to get to them. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have boats to get to them. Yeah. And, and maybe that's why part of, maybe that's part of his assessment that the Ionians were pretty weak among the Greeks at this time. They just weren't really prepared to fight. And so,
the Mastigai or however you say that, the, the last people that are further inland to Asia, they reminded me of, um, I guess, more of what I thought barbarians were. You know, we started earlier in book one and the barbarians seemed more civilized than I would have thought of um, barbarians. But for the queen, you know, takes a bag of blood at the end to go get Cyrus's head and puts it in there mm-hmm. and, and holds it up. And I forget what she declares, but basically makes him drink, drink, his, drink blood because he's so blood. Bloodthirsty. Bloodthirsty. Yeah, it was interesting to get a couple of examples of um, pretty strong female leaders, right? It gave the kind of historic ones from Babylon who were really wise. And and then this queen who uh, is unwilling to back down once her son is killed, especially. Um, it's not, I think, something we're used to associating with a lot of the kind of Greek and Roman history, but tend to get primarily kings and emperors and things, but those were, uh, this whole thing makes you a little more curious about the history of the Babylonian empire, um, and, and the Assyrians and things. And so, um, I think there was one of my footnotes that said that like, he's kind of setting us up for some of that too. Like he's going to go back, like there's going to be other books where he talks more about their conquering of those people groups on their way to the Greeks. Um, or after the Greeks, and so, but yeah, that that it uh, it's those empires that you just, uh, like you know for me you just kind of bounce across when you're reading the Old Testament and don't give too much thought to other than they were the major empires around, um, and we just don't we don't talk we don't study them as much even in classical education circles as we do the Greeks and the Romans, and so um, who are more kind of directly. Uh, intellectual descendants of, I guess, um, but it's um, makes me want to read more about it. Well, we have gotten to the book end of book one, um, and now I feel kind of bad that we're only doing book one because I feel like we've just kind of gotten set up for the next wave of stuff with Herodotus. But so we're gonna have to come back to the circle back to this one soon. Um, I hope you know, folks out there have some questions percolating about book one. We're going to do that Q and a next week. Uh, anything on, on y'all's mind as we kind of are parting that you're still thinking about wanting to spend some more time pondering from book one. Well, now that Cyrus is dead, who, who's going to take over? <laughs> <laughs> is Croesus going to come back into power because he's the advisor or I guess Cyrus has children maybe that would take over i did i did go into book two a little bit and it starts <laughs> with the egyptians so um we'll see i think we'll we'll get to hear more about the egyptians so maybe nice that's a clue alec anything on your mind yeah i'm still thinking about Solon's question of happiness. Mm, nice. So just kind of want to go back and revisit that question over the course of the whole book. Yeah. Would be 
I feel like Nido, Queen Nido Crease or whatever her name was is probably up there playing a practical joke after her death. Nice. That's got to be a good. That's going to be a happy death. <laughs> I like it. All right, I like that. Let's 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 put that on our list to to kind of talk through a little bit during the Q and A session. I think that's a good one to come back to you for sure. Cool. Well, thank you guys for for being with me again today. This has been a lot of fun. It seemed like it went by kind of quick. But there's a, there's a three the three sessions, but at least we get the Q and A to kind of wrap this book up. So at home, if you're listening along with us, please uh, do send those uh, questions and comments in to uh, podcast at searchinstitute.org, or you can go over to the uh, circle.so page um, and post them there. Um, and I'll try and put up a I'll put up a post there for anybody that's got a question. Um, and thanks for reading along with us and joining us this week. Hope you join us next week uh, for the Q&A. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network. 